Hello, you're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. As always, we've got an exciting show for you this month. Andrew's going to finish his discussion on origins of life research. I'm going to talk a bit about uh, astronomy and computing and programming and all of those sort of things. And Hannah's going to cover all of the recent exoplanet news. But first, let's meet our exocasters. I'm Hugh Osborne, and I am a postdoc at the Laboratoire d'Astrophysique de Marseille, uh, studying Plato and transiting exoplanets. Uh, my name is Andrew Rushby, and I study the uh, early climate of the Earth and planetary habitability from NASA Ames Research Center in Northern California. And I'm Hannah Wakeford, and I use the Hubble Space Telescope to study what makes up the atmospheres of mostly giant exoplanets, and I'm currently a research fellow at the University of Exeter. But kicking off this episode, as Hugh said, is Andrew, and he's going to present the second part of his Origins of Life discussion, which he started in Exocast 17b and left us uh, with many intriguing questions and possibilities. So, Andrew, where are you taking us next? Uh, well, hopefully I'm going to provide a bit of an overview of, what's, um, of what the current state of the, of the field is. This is coming from an outsider, I should stress. And then maybe about what's, uh, what's in, in store for the future. Um, and, you know, this being our first double segment, you know, I think it's, it's um, the fact that it's about the origin of life. Um, you know, that, that warrants two segments, at least, I think, on Exocast, maybe even more. But anyway, without further ado, um, so during episode 17B, which was one episode be- uh, um, before we were joined by, by Sasha, um, I started talking a little bit about uh, origins of life and, and, and the history of those studies. Um, discovered that they're you know, complex and varied and, and often multidisciplinary, surprisingly, studies into the, um, the origins of the, the first organisms on this planet. Um, but crucially also into the early conditions uh, on, on the Earth that allowed that um, genesis, if you will, to occur. So we now know that, of course, that the evolution of life and the evolution of the planet are intrinsically linked, and that that kind of dynamism has, uh, has informed a lot of the current studies and hopefully some of the future studies too. So during that previous segment, I covered uh, at absolute breakneck speed some of the seminal ideas and theories in this uh, in this area of research. But I noted that there stands no commonly accepted model for how life began. Um, a recap of what we do know is that it started in in a window roughly between 4.1 and 3.7 billion years ago in the Archean, um, and this was on an Earth bathed in radiation from a much dimmer sun. Um, there was also no oxygen or ozone layer in the atmosphere, um, so the stellar radiation reaching the surface still contained many um, high-energy UV photons than our atmosphere currently allows to get down to the surface, despite the sun emitting roughly 25% less radiation back then. So the bare, um, the bare rock surface of the planet was not particularly conducive to life, but somehow the Earth's complex and interconnected biosphere emerged by common descent from a single putative organism, evolving and speciating according to the laws of natural selection into all of the diversity of life on the planet that we see now and culminating eventually in a complex biosphere in which weird things like proboscis monkeys and mantis shrimp are a thing. So 
Let's just appreciate that. Uh, so many of those early experiments followed the Yuri Miller model, which I did uh, introduce last time, uh, in which people attempt to replicate the atmospheric and climatic conditions of the early Earth in laboratory conditions in order to see what develops from a contained mixture of, of methane, ammonia, and hydrogen gases uh, in a flask when energy in the form of lightning or, or sparks uh, is introduced into that system. So this was quite the undertaking back then, given that we knew very little about what the early Earth was like at that stage, um, or the particular environmental niche or conditions in which life was likely to have emerged. So a very, very long story short is that organic compounds and amino acids, which we know, we know are used to make proteins, are formed relatively easily and in great abundance in, in those experiments. Um, and they're bound up in this matrix of, of goopy hydrocarbon tars. This may suggest that these compounds actually might have been fairly abundant on the Archean Earth, in that the, the chemistry was actually quite conducive to making that those kind of compounds. Um, and therefore that implication life might have emerged relatively easily uh, in extremely exaggerated air quotes, um, you know, not, not long afterwards. Um, of course, this is the, only the first step on route to you know, complex and purportedly even intelligent life, um, but one with incredibly significant implications, obviously, for biology and the search for life on other planets. So 50 years on, um, the focus of origin of life researchers now appears to be shifting from studying those amino acids in the flask to actually studying the tarry goop in which they are initially bound up instead. So the, the clean chemistry, again in, in air quotes, of those early experiments that painstakingly extracted delicate amino acids from the tarry mess to study in isolation is kind of on its way to being usurped instead by the messy chemistry of studying the tars and the amino acids in situ. So much like planetary science or astrobiology, um, origin of life research is a complex system science. There are, are clearly multiple interconnected elements, whether it's the, the chemistry or the environment or even you know, stellar factors that, that are all interconnected elements of this tale. And it's impossible to understand one without first considering and appreciating the other. So in this case, how can we consider or how can we study the emergence of those first amino acids without also considering the environmental conditions and the kind of solution from which they first emerged? I mean, of course, there was no biochemistry postdoc around during the Archean anyway to spend long nights extracting only amino acids from you know, Darwin's warm little pond. Um, so this approach is, is not just more realistic and scientifically rigorous, um, but it's also unfortunately methodologically challenging, as you can imagine. So scientists now think that that, that tarry gloop that ac accumulates in these experiments may actually assist in the formation of early proto-life. So not just from a chemical point of view, but in the sense that it provides a type of um, crude pseudo-biological kind of scaffold, um, as well as allowing for the concentration of those compounds in a relatively isolated environment. So I mentioned this in the previous segment, but this is like a key point in the evolution of life is finding a way to compartmentalize and then kind of get those tasty chemicals down into one self-contained cell type thing that crucially concentrates them uh, to some threshold. Um, so scientists working in this area, many um, of whom I discovered are at ELSI, which is the Earth Life Science Institute in Tokyo, um, as well as the Carnegie Institute and Georgia Institute of Technology, as well as obviously many others, point to the fact that, that life is not straightforward and clean in reality. And in order to properly understand how it emerged, we need to take this top-down 
messy, almost black box approach to origin of life experiments. After all, it does make sense to, you know, look at the, the bigger picture. It doesn't necessarily make sense to only look at the straight line chemical processes, you know, like compound one plus compound two equals compound three. Um, that, and then consider that process completely independent of all the other chemistry happening around it. That's not to say this approach is easy, however. Um, how, do you, how do you tease out which are the important reactions and catalysts and compounds from this you know, incredibly complex tarry sludge? And then determine which are you know, forming from which structured chemical pathways um, en route to greater complexity as opposed to just general randomness. So you can, you can take a focus on maybe a particular promising compound uh, that emerges consistently from the goop and maybe one that dis displays interesting behaviors. Uh, one I came across was hyperbranched polymers, which are quite a, an area of research um, that's, that's pretty pertinent today uh, because these exhibit some potential evolvability in, in lab conditions uh, in that they display some ability to, to pass on information between generations However, you know, that, that messy prebiotic chemistry is not only being done in the lab, uh, but it's also been done through virtual simulations using powerful supercomputers of the sort I think you might be covering in our next segment. Um, and these models are attempting to determine if there are any uh, kind of particular situations in which you can crucially lose entropy, right, which where the chemistry becomes more ordered and, and less random, and particularly what conditions uh, are required for that, that process to occur. So, you know, this is another area of science in which lab scientists and computer modelers need each other and feedback hypotheses to one another's chosen methodology and, you know, kind of opposite sides of the same coin. The sheer number of possible chemical reactions, which can be several million, even in a relatively simple origin of life experiment, um, results in enormous amount of work into, involved in, you know, kind of teasing out those in a lab setting, which might be prohibitive. The modelers, though, uh, you know, they need those lab scientists to test their convoluted abstractions and figure out, you know, whether the chemistry, you know, they model is actually occurring and behaves as their computer models would suggest. So early resu the results from some of these computer studies suggest that in certain conditions, chemical self-production occurs and that systems can change dramatically in response to small changes, such as uh, a change in temperature. Arguably more important is the finding that messy chemistry is qualitatively different from clean chemistry, but in a kind of weird non-linear way, in the sense that adding more species doesn't just mean that the system gets more difficult to study and produces a great amount of the same compounds, but it means that fundamentally new and unexpected behaviours do and can emerge. So the search for answers to one of the most significant open questions in science continues. Uh, but personally, I like this messy chemical approach. I mean, I might not like it if I was a biochemistry PhD having to like having to do it, but it seems to be a step in the right direction, at least in that it's kind of in keeping with the approach taken by other sciences, other system sciences that we we might be more familiar here in the Exocast studio. Still, there's a long way to go. Uh, we regularly discover new new data and, and stories about the very earliest conditions on the planet. Uh, and we hope to continue to unravel more about that enigmatic crucial period in the Earth's history. So trying to relate this work back to the search for life on exoplanets right now maybe is a little bit futile. Um, but with many facets of astrobiology and, and planetary science, learning more about the phenomenon that occurs on the Earth or in our solar system or just nearby may reveal 
universal mechanisms and patterns of behavior that could hold on other planets and in different environments. Um, and by doing so, that helps us to better understand the distribution and proliferation of life in the universe. Um, so there we go. I don't know what you guys think about that, that approach to, to looking for those first elusive amino acids and maybe protocells. I think it's going to be difficult, like more difficult than what uh, kind of the community itself seems to emanate to the, the population as a whole. Um, I think that's a difficult kind of balance that everybody's trying to backtrack on, which is the problem. Um, but I, I was wondering what you thought about the different methods that we use here on Earth to try and understand those early conditions and, and whether or not there was in any way a better way of doing that such that we can apply it to exoplanets. What, a better way of like figuring out what the early Earth might have been like? Yeah. Um, Is it no, in I, actual I, I, looking at rocks and core samples and or in the lab testing different things? Is it simulating an entirely new world inside a computer? I mean, it's a really complex scenario that... Well, I feel we a little even... bit biased. I feel like I would be going down the, the, the scenario of trying to simulate a whole new world. You know, why try and figure out the one we have when we could just build a new one from scratch? Um, but I think that the... As with most things, the best approach is probably a very um, multifaceted one in which people are doing a little bit of all of those things. The problem with the early Earth is that, you know, we just run out of, you know, we're going to run out of samples at some stage. It's really difficult to find rocks that are like four billion years old. Uh, and when we do, it's almost impossible to entirely ruin out contamination. Um, so we do the best with what we have. And I think we do really well, actually. And there's some some really interesting methodologies that emerge to try and tease out information. One of my favorites is actually uh, from a colleague here at Ames who uses um, the, the the depth and the shape and the morphology of raindrop imprints in incredibly old rocks to determine what the air pressure and composition was like, because air pressure has an effect on how raindrops fall and the speed at which they fall and how their impact onto the surface changes. So it's little things like that that I wouldn't even have thought of as being a possibility that reveals really interesting details about the earliest history of the planet. Cool. I know, it's really cool, actually. <laughs> it's not Now perfect, I'm thinking about clouds. That, but, uh, Maybe start thinking about nice little clouds in, in early Earth's atmosphere, where they're forming in the atmosphere, how they're forming, what they're made of. Yeah. So it's, I, I think the key is just that not that eureka, eureka moment. I don't want to. I don't want to be a cliche, but finding finding that that avenue that was previously unexplored and actually results in some really, you know, really cool and interesting discoveries. How far away do you think we are in in years from sim being able to simulate or know precisely how that happened? Oh my gosh, he. Uh, how far away <laughs> would you say we are in years from being able to directly image the surface of terrestrial exoplanets? No, I, I mean, I mean, like how? No, I mean, how far away in years are we from being able to tell how the origin of life on Earth occurred, like chemically and and uh, biologically? I I would have no idea where to begin with that. Uh, I hope I hope with you know it's going to be close. I I'm an optimist, and I I think this approach um, is probably one of many. Um, that are out there. There's synthetic biology that's doing some really interesting stuff. There's computational biology is doing incredibly interesting stuff. And coming to it from a relative outsider, I guess, um, it seems to me that things, the paradigm is shifting really quickly. And I, I, I wonder if that would result in, you know, more momentous discoveries coming quicker, you know, and faster 
than, than they have done in the past. Right, well, now Hugh's going to talk about computing and astronomy. Uh, what exactly does that mean? Um, I thought we just used telescopes. Yeah, well, I think that a lot of people think that. I mean, obviously, many of our listeners are in the profession, so they know that um, we don't use telescopes, right? But some out the, outside the fields, it's kind of surprising how rarely professional astronomers actually go and operate a telescope, let alone look through one with their like eyes. You know, I'd, I've never been to an observatory and looked through an eyepiece. I'm sure you guys, I don't. Have you guys even been to an observatory? Yeah, I've managed yeah. to go. Yeah. Okay. All right, Andrew. Yeah, no, I have uh, only a very oh, right. small one. Um, but yeah, as okay. you say, there was no no eyepiece to peer, peer yeah. through. Yeah, in fact, I'd probably be willing to bet that there are many astronomers who haven't ever visited an observatory or used a telescope. And at the same time, I'd be willing to bet that there are no professional astronomers who can't use a computer and at least do basic pro pro programming. Um, and in fact, there was a survey recently of 1,100 astronomers, and every single one of those answered yes to the question, do you use software? Um, and actually 90% of those surveyed wrote their own software as well. So that kind of gives you an idea of just how extensive computational like methods are in astronomy. Um, so what do we use? Well, <laughs> the first thing we don't use is Windows, sorry to say. Uh, like of, of the same survey, I think uh, it was 75% of people used a Mac, 25% of people used Linux, and maybe 1% or 2%, I'm not sure, used Windows, but it's very rare. And the reason is that almost all computing software is Linux or Unix-based. Um, and with Windows, that doesn't really come naturally. The, the most common programming language for astronomers is Python, which is kind of makes sense because it's relatively readable and therefore simple and it's, there's no compiling necessary. And also it's pretty fast compared to things like R and MATLAB. And it comes with a lot of great tools for things like visualiz visual, ooh, visualization with matplotlib and Seaborn, um, like notebook tools such as Jupyter, Jupyter, I'm not sure how you say it's it. Jupyter. Um, Jupyter. Well, it's got a pi in there. It's like the numpy numpy argument could be applied here. Yeah, um, that's true. I didn't think of that. Yeah, I never yeah. noticed that. You're totally right, though. I just yeah, thought they put are. a red Y in there for some reason to make it But everybody instead. I've ever met calls it Jupiter. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, I think I call it Jupiter, but now I'm looking at it, I'm unsure. Um, and there's also some cool package managers like Anaconda and, and Canopy. And so Python's really used uh, the most common. So 80% of postdocs and PhD students use Python. That drops to about 50% for the older generation of pen people with tenure, uh, of which Hannah pretends to be one. No. <laughs> Not with the tenure, that would be fantastic, oh, yeah, no, sure. but with the, just the old school. Yeah. I'll get there. Um, <laughs> good. So there's also hundreds of specific uh, astronomy packages available on Python, courtesy of community members through GitHub, and also something like AstroPy. So AstroPy is a huge library of tools and something like 30 affiliated packages uh, made up of hundreds of con contributors and could do almost everything you want. And then kind of lower down the list from Python, there's uh, shell scripts came next. So just um, using the command line to effectively write scripts to most, most often used for like repeating the same command. And uh, also things like Git, which is a version control system, which is pretty is used in almost all the big software projects at the moment, uh, which is um, growing in popularity in astronomy as well. And then there's IDL, which is maybe slightly just under half of astronomers use it. Uh, I think that's the one that, that um, Hannah uses, right? Yep, that's the one I use. 
Yeah, so that's kind of the astronomer's tour of the 90s. Uh, it's not open source. <laughs> <laughs> and you need a, a license. Uh, it's very similar to Python, though. It's slightly, slightly slower as well. And then you go to kind of older school to C++ and C and Fortran, which have like 30 to 40% of people know how to use this in, in astronomy. And those are the fastest kind of languages, but they have this steep learning curve. Um, so it kind of puts, puts at least um, the casual computer or computational astronomer uh, off, really. And then things like IRAF, which is another callback to the 90s, which deals with images and processing uh, similar to DS9 as well. So, so what, why do we use these computing things? What do we, what do astronomers actually do with these um, computers? So, one of the first things is like modeling complex problems. So, a lot of physical processes are complex and they don't have a, like a general solution, uh, and they can't be described by simple mathematics. So, that includes things like exoplanet atmosphere simulations, where heat and wind and clouds and convection and hazes all need to be taken into account across the surface of a planet. Uh, so you need a, a big computer to run all these models. Also things like n-body simulations of gravitational interactions, which is famously uh, doesn't have a general solution. Uh, so something like taking tens of thousands of test particles to make a disk and then modeling how planets form. And then, as Andrew mentioned, things even like chem origin of life chem chemistry uh, simulations. And these are kind of the simulations where um, the number of like data points is small, but the number of possible ways of re reproducing that data is quite high. So... Uh, and these are often used to predict future ob observations and and to kind of point observers into what to look for. And these are the times where we use big supercomputers with with thousands of gigabytes of RAM for each of these simulations. But then we we do need for even the simpler models we need some hardcore computing as well. So um, if you want to test a model against its um, or test observations against your model your idea of what the physical processes is happening then you need well you need software you need a computer for that and also in order to find the best fitting parameter values and determine the uncertainties on that model we need to run that model thousands of times with different varying parameters in something like mcmc so markov chain monte carlo or nested sampling there's lots of ways that astronomers do this and you can also do something similar where you compare multiple models and see which is best um, and another thing you might want to model is not just the physical sort of what you're looking for but also th other things that are going on in your data so like nuisance parameters from the instruments so i know that hannah has to deal with what hubble's orbits look like for the the starlight coming from uh, from her targets which is a hassle mm. right well it's it's the fact that hubble orbits the earth so it's thermally heated and cooled continuously throughout its orbit so you get this nice little wave this sign sort of wave throughout where the telescope is flexing physically flexing as you're taking the observations yeah, so we have to use some advanced techniques to get rid of those. And one of those techniques is kind of, uh, well, a more recent sort of developed technique is Gaussian processes. So this is a way of modeling how the measurements of one data point can affect other data points by applying like a Gaussian distribution to the so-called covariance between those points. And that kind of precisely models everything from a smoothly varying star spot noise to rapid periodic sort of pulsations. And that's certainly on the increase in astronomy at the moment. Um, but possibly the most important use of computing in astronomy is, is, is for large data sets. So most astronomical surveys generate hundreds of gigabytes, if not terabytes of data now. And this data first has to be processed to remove instrumental effects. And uh, effectively, there's a pipeline that takes you from raw telescope data, like images or spectra, to reduced data. And this is often extremely comput computationally intensive. Um, 
And then sometimes you have to simulate the raw data of the entire survey in order to test that pipeline as well. So, so for example, NASA's Pleiades computer, which is um, six petaflops, and it's the world's <laughs> Andrew's uh, and Sitting Andrew's local uh, <laughs> local Linux server, I think. No. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I've, I've I've had a tour around there. It's actually really cool. They've got the hyperwarp yeah. visualization up as well. I played some oh, games. Cool. No, I didn't. That's... It's the thirteenth <laughs> largest computer in the world. So I saw. And this was exhaustively used to test the Kepler pipeline to assess not only the best way to go from the raw pixels to the light curves to detected exoplanets, but also to measure if there's any planet mimicking signals that are going through that sort of process and how, how many of those and how sensitive the, um, the pipeline is to these sort of changes. And another big problem, of course, is that when you've got such a big data set, it's impossible to search by eye, by human interaction. So you need computational methods to search those. So this is similar to the big data methods used by the big computing companies like you know Google, but done on a small scale um, for astronomers. And these can be pretty simple, like just running the same model over each data set to search for a signal, which is kind of what I do in, in it when I'm searching for planets, just compare a transit model against the light curve of each star and then allow the computer to separate those which have a strong planetary signal from those that don't. Um, and in the last few years, actually, that's developed more and more into sort of a machine learning approach, so AI almost, um, which are a broad category of algorithms that can learn from and make predictions based on the data that you give it. And um, that's kind of the future. And it's already being used in exoplanet astronomy, actually. So there's things like self-organizing maps, which are these ways of grouping data without ever telling the machine what to do. And those are used for, like, classifying variable stars and, and uh, transit shapes and things like this. There's um, random forests are used quite a lot. So, for example, the Kepler, in order to sift through the Kepler detections, a random forest was effectively used with all these little decision trees that point um, each individual uh, candidate either to a false positive category or a transit category. And gradually, over time, if you replay this, you the, the algorithm learns which ones are the planets and which ones aren't. And then some things like neural networks as well um, are used quite a bit now in, in astronomy. So there's there's a, uh, an interesting uh, robot called Robert, which is uh, retrieves mo the molecules in an exoplanet atmosphere um, just by looking at the spectra and having been trained on the spectra of uh, molecules, I guess, the, the, the intrinsic spectra. And... Um, in fields outside exoplanets where they get to play with actual images, then things like convolutional neural networks are amazing at classifying images, which is kind of what Google Images does it itself, but you can use on galaxy morphology and, and other sort of uh, uh, images like that. And then the future is even going to get like more computationally intensive because Plato and Gaia, for example, are producing 10 terabytes per year. LSST will create 7 petabytes per year, so that's 7,000 terabytes. And then the SKA, which, I mean, won't be finding exoplanets, but that you're looking at three exobytes of data per year. So wow, that's, At least there's that's, an exo in there. Yeah, there is an exo in there. That's maybe why I added it. But yeah, that's, that's a crazy <laughs> amount of data. That's, um, what would that be? <laughs> three million te one terabyte hard drives. <laughs> <laughs> you can't shift so, yeah, that much data. I, I, from what I've heard, the LSST are just having trouble trying to work out how to shift uh, and store that much data in the first place. Yeah. So they get. So I mean, we're going to become even more reliant on computers and people who, and software developers and people who understand exactly how to play with that much data. Because there's certainly 
I think astronomers are going to be out of their depth in the, when it comes to things like SKA and LSST. Um, yeah, so in all, we're reaching an age where the biggest prerequisite for astronomy is not practical observational knowledge of the sky and of telescopes, but programming knowledge, I think. And if you're still studying physics or astrophysics, then maybe just ditch the uh, observational side and take some... Uh... <laughs> no, I can't say that. But definitely take as many computing courses as possible and learn Python in your spare time, something like that. Start getting used to solving problems with code because that's exactly what you'll be doing as an astronomer. Um, and when it comes to astronomers, we kind of need to do more than simply publish the results and uncertainties that we get from our code. We should be publishing the codes and the sample set we use and everything that goes through your model and, and comes out in these pretty results at the end. And also we should be um, citing the people who developed that software because all too often astronomers ignore that um, the packages that we use in our, in our work and the, the people whose hard work goes into developing those packages like AstroPy goes uncredited. So, uh, so I think that's something that astronomers need to do. But yeah, that's, that's my little overview on it's very broad of computing and astronomy. Do you guys have any, any inputs on that? Well, no, well well, it's, said a very, here, it's a very broad topic. So I think he kind of covered everything in, in a quite, uh, in a way which kind of conveys just how much there is, um, and, and how many different things you can do because not each of us do not use every single one of those things you mentioned and I think that's another thing that should be pointed out is that you don't need to know every single one of those um, you can become a specialist in one small part of that but that as a whole is what what the astronomy community is doing I think I think it'd be impossible for you to like know everything about everything it's uh, too much going on in, in computing and astronomy at the moment well, I'm struggling to learn Python and IDL at the same time so we're good <laughs> well, no, I know IDL. Python's a bit of a... <laughs> It'll come, though. So again, you know, it stresses that collaborative element of astronomy. Chances are you're not maybe going to know how to do a random forest, um, but, you know, maybe MCMC is your thing, and that's why you're going to have to speak to someone who does. Um, and just be friendly to your software engineers as well. Mm. You know, those guys are going to help you out in the future. That's I was true. interested, Hugh, you said um, you had some statistics that you're like, you know, 80% of people use Macs, etc. Did you conduct that survey yourself? Or? No, there's a, there's a paper from 2015, which is called um, Stof Software Use in Astronomy, an Informal Survey, wow. which was done by a, a couple of people who develop AstroPy, I think. But yeah, I, I got the, the data from there. It's quite an interesting paper. It's Sounds really like cool that every time you submit uh, the Hubble or in the future with the James Webb, uh, any program to space telescope they will ask if they're allowed to take the data um, and what they're looking at there is what programs you're using and what computers you're using to submit that um, and each year they give out the statistics on what types of computers people are using and it's very very close to what Hugh said um, with a couple of super old school computers thrown in there by like two users or something um, but yeah it's it's very much Mac based and Linux based. Yeah, I'm pretty sure those guys who who boot up their like 1970s computer, they they only use it for that proposal submission, right? Probably. So, I don't know what else you just... could bloody well do on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So this this time we have two months worth of exoplanet news, given we didn't talk about it, uh, the news last month. So it sounds like we've got a lot to cover, Hannah, and she's on our international news desk this month. So what's been uh, what's been going on? Well, um, astronomers have been using their computers to uh, actively churn out hundreds of papers in the last two months. So that's another thing that we do with our computers. 
Um, and I managed to sift through a couple of them and I'm just going to give you a rundown of, of what's been going on. So as always, we never stop uh, with discoveries and ideas. Um, and there's been a couple which I'm just going to briefly mention that is the use of these exoplanets that we're looking at to look at these stellar activity. We really need to understand the stars that we're looking at. And specifically in the last few months, the papers on Kepler-71 and GJ-436 planetary systems, just looking at how those stars uh, um, themselves are acting and interacting and using the planets uh, that are transiting those stars as a way of probing them. So I thought that was really cool. Um, the habitability questions and, and looking at the impact of various parameters that can have on the hosted planets by the stars is also something that's still a very hot topic. Um, and in many cases, they're still using the TRAPPIST system as an example there. Um, but as I said, there's a lot to get through. And unfortunately, uh, I can't go through all 300 plus papers, which I looked through on archive. So um, I'm just going to highlight some of the things that might be interesting and useful to our listeners, um, starting off with some new discoveries. And um, we have some new WASP planets out this month, uh, three of them with some work by our very own Hugh Osborne. Uh, WASP uh, 151b and WASP 153 uh, are both hot Saturns with highly inflated radii and relatively high temperatures, um, which are over 1400 Kelvin. And then in that same paper, WASP-156b, which is a warm super Neptune and uh, a bulk density actually equal to that of Jupiter. So all of these new worlds will be very interesting additions to the potential follow-up studies um, looking at their atmospheres. They, they each have properties which uh, make them very useful for those kinds of studies. Um, and I particularly like the look of the WASP-153b. Um, which has a very high temperature and is highly inflated, which means it's got a very large scale height. And we should be able to get a really nice transmission signal from that one. So I'd be interested to see uh, what its atmosphere is made of in the future. Uh, the final WASP planet, which joined the discovery uh, um, this last couple of months, was actually joint with the KELT team. And it's dubbed uh, WASP-167 or KELT-13. And it's a 1.5 uh, Jupiter radius planet with a mass less than eight Jupiters. So it's quite uh, a hefty world. And interestingly, it's in a retrograde orbit around its star, which suggests that it actually had a very dynamic evolution in history. The KELT team had one more planet discovery in these last couple of months, and that's KELT 19AB, which is another hot Jupiter. It's roughly four times the mass of Jupiter, so a little bit lighter than the last KELT planet. Um, and these these high mass planets actually make it quite difficult to do follow up um, with the traditional studies that we're using to look at their atmospheres. But it's not necessarily impossible. It's just that the high gravity of these planets because of their mass means that the atmosphere doesn't extend as far. And that makes it a little bit harder to collect photons. But both of those Kelt systems, uh, we could potentially learn a, a little bit more from in the future. So to stick with hot Jupiters, um, the planet... K2113 was found orbiting a solar analog star and the planet's in a 5.8 day orbit and has a mass of 1.29 Jupiters uh, and it's just under one Jupiter radii. And the team suggests that follow-up observations will show that it has an atmospheric uh, heavy element abundance around a hundred times solar. Um, but I would actually say, uh, given, given its mass uh, and its size, that we can't really 
know that for sure. Looking at evidence from current exoplanet studies, um, we're always surprised as to what the the atmospheric heavy element abundance is. And we're getting more and more evidence that it's not going to be as simple um, as a simple linear law that we see in our solar system. Uh, so moving on to small planets, but sticking with K2 for a second, uh, there were three small planets that have been discovered around LP358499, which has now been dubbed K2133 B, C and D. Uh, and they orbit in a uh, three days, 4.9 days and 11 days. So that's another uh, host of uh, small planets uh, around one star. And then another K2 discovery, three small super Earths, so slightly larger, um, were measured around GJ9827 uh, with a with radii of 1.75, 1.36, and 2.1 Earth radii. Um, and that's from one to six day orbits. So we've got two systems there with three small-ish planets um, in, in relatively similar orbital periods. Um, next up, uh, the star GJ625. If you're keeping track, this is just a lot of numbers flying at you. They're all names. Um, it's been found to host a super Earth on the inner edge of the star's habitable zone. So though the, the star and planet um, and the activity of the star itself leaves a lot to the imagination for actual habitability, it's an interesting to see the distributions of planets we get at different orbits. Um, skipping to some RV data, we got 18 years of RV data of the star HD 34445. Uh, and that's been found to host six planets. Now, all of these are still candidates, but they have masses between Neptune and Jupiter um, and extend into and beyond the habitable zone of that star. So again, looking at the distribution of types of planets and where they would uh, end up orbiting around these stars. So we wouldn't, again, expect any of these to be habitable, but we've, I'm sure uh, the Kipping group won't rule out the presence of any moons in that system. Um and then finally, on to the discovery of three small planets uh, in the Hades cluster. Um, they orbit the star LP358348, uh, which is a late K dwarf. And it's actually the first star in a cluster detected with multiple transiting planets. Um, and each of the planets are small with roughly Earth radii um, and at roughly 8, 17 and 35 day orbits. So this, uh, this planetary system actually has a good chance of giving decent radial velocity measurements so we can get the masses of these worlds um, and could possibly be used for atmospheric follow-up studies, which would give information on the impact that clusters, that, that stellar clusters have on planetary atmospheres, uh, looking at the feedback, the radio feedback from other stars. Um, so that would be really interesting. So I, I imagine that we should keep an eye out from the Exocast News Desk a bit for a bit more about those cluster systems. Uh, moving on from absolute discoveries, I want to give a, a rundown on atmospheric characterization that's been happening over the last couple of months. Um, so just to start with some fun flat lines, I'm going to just, you know, run down the list of the non-detections, but detections at the same time. So WASP-48b uh, has new optical spectroscopy, which shows that it has a flat or inconclusive transmission spectrum with no noticeable absorption features. WAS-52 was observed in the optical from the ground and was concluded to have optically thick cloud layer. Uh, a similar thing can be said for WAS-4b, which was looked at with the Gemini GMOS instrument um, over the whole optical band parser and little to no uh, spectral features were obs uh, observed there. 
again using Gemini GMOS, a study uh, was conducted on WASP-80, which is the subject of some intensive James Webb GTO studies. Um, but the paper has actually come out showing that it has a flat transmission spectrum from 500 nanometers to one micron. So that suggests that uh, there's a significant opacity source in the atmosphere, which is obscuring the expected atomic features. Um, and that seems to be uniform across all wavelengths, which means it's probably a cloud composed of relatively large particle sizes. So I, I mean, it's not great news for those wanting to do the measurements of the atmospheric composition uh, and abundance of, of molecules in the atmosphere, as, as these obscuring particles are, are going to cause a little bit of trouble of getting any absolute measurements. Um, but not only that, but these measurements are actually different from a previous measurement which was done. So there's confusion there as to whether or not it's a repeatable planet that can be looked at. So I don't know what uh, the GTO teams will be seeing with James Webb for that one. Um, let's move away from flat lines. Let's go to something a little bit more fun. Uh, there's been a number of optical atomic line features that have been observed. The hot Jupiter WASP-103 has been looked at with Gemini GMOS, um, and it appears there are prominent sodium and potassium line cores uh, in the transmission spectrum. One thing to note is that there's not a, a base pressure broadening that's been seen for these lines. So what you, when you're looking at sodium and potassium, you'd expect to see the wings of those line features, and that would tell you that you're seeing uh, the hydrogen-helium scattering uh, of the atmosphere, which would suggest that there's no cloud opacities there. But in fact, they don't see these. They just see the strong cores of these lines, which suggests that they're actually, um, they definitely can't rule out cloud opacities in that atmosphere. Um, but the the sodium doublet has been resolved, which makes it an interesting target for, for more detailed follow-up. Uh, sodium has also been detected in the atmosphere of WASP-69b uh, using high-resolution spectroscopy. The uh, sodium detection was found in the hot Jupiter HD189733b, and they used that to calibrate the analysis method that they used to see the detection in WASP-69b. So that's an interesting way of doing it, and it really helps to understand whether or not you're, you're actually seeing the same thing or something different. However, for WASP-69b, there was no potassium found. So that suggests that there are processes occurring in the atmosphere that mute uh, one absorption signature over the other um, when both are actually expected. And we've seen this kind of thing before where we, we've seen sodium but no potassium or we've seen potassium but no sodium. And it, it's really still a question as to what's going on in these atmospheres as to why we're not seeing uh, both of these line cores. Um, so a little bit more follow-ups needed in terms of confirmation of all of those kind of processes that are, that are happening. And I think that will take a wider sample of planets as well. Um, in fact, WASP-69b is already part of a number of Hubble Space Telescope programs to observe the atmosphere in transmission. So um, we'll definitely have a little bit more information for that planet uh, over a wider wavelength range. Now, um, TIO, titanium oxide, has been the subject of many spectroscopic studies uh, in over many, many years, um, in fact, almost a decade. Uh, and in our last Exocast uh, news segment, we reported on the emission spectrum of WASP-121b, which has evidence of water emission and possible TIO and VO emission, which actually followed the same results observed in transmission for WASP-121b a year earlier. So there's there's been evidence creeping in that this TIO uh, and VO actually exist in the atmosphere. And over the last month alone, we've, we've now seen two more papers looking uh, at this previously elusive molecule. Um, 
So the Gatti et al. present the detection of TiO in the atmosphere of the hot Jupiter WASP-19b using the VLT Force 2 instrument. It's a very, very powerful instrument uh, in transmission spectroscopy. And it's going to be used many, many more times, I imagine. There's a number of large programs that we know that are on that. Um, and there's so many exciting detections that can come from, from this ground-based instrument. Um, this one uh, actually suggests that there's titanium oxide in the atmosphere by fitting the spectral features uh, in the optical region of the WASP-19 spectrum. Now, from the, the paper, they detail a two-component analysis, um, which seems to take in possible wavelength positional shifts in the actual molecular lines. Um, this is something that's kind of done in brown dwarfs. Um, it's not 100% clear to me why this might be the case for transiting exoplanets as it's a relative measurement and you wouldn't expect any shifts in position of the molecular lines. Um, but what they actually, you can see very clearly from the spectrum is that there are features in that spectrum that appear to be fit by this titanium oxide, which is quite exciting. I'm, I'm, I'm still skeptical, but I'm really excited to see future work um, on this planet, which is a really interesting planet, and on this star, which is quite active as well. So you have to really be careful with that. Um, but it's a really cool result with really high resolution spectra from the ground. And I think that's the really important point here. Um, TIO has also been observed at high resolution in the atmosphere of the hot Jupiter WASP-33b. Um, WASP-33 has actually had a number of things uh, looked at it before. It was speculated that there was titanium oxide in the atmosphere from a few years ago, a secondary eclipse detection, which suggested that in uh, the emission you were, you were seeing evidence of this TIO, which would cause an inversion in the atmosphere, like I mentioned for uh, the WASP-121. Um, but that hadn't been confirmed. But again, from the ground, they've now got like a high resolution um, detection of this TIO. And that was done by scientists from Japan using the, the high dispersion spectrograph on the Subaru telescope, which is on Mauna Kea in Hawaii. Now, the significance of this detection is actually over four sigma, which is really nice. Um, and like the Sedigati result uh, in this planet where it's expected to have been seen, this TIO, um, it's not been seen before, as I said, like conclusively. So both these new measurements are, are filling in that expected parameter space and confirmation of these results paired with other molecular absorption features will really give us an idea of these types of planets, these very hot planets with this TIO in the atmosphere, which is suggested to cause these inversions. Um, so it's really exciting to try and look at these molecules because we're really trying to understand this very high temperature regime that we just don't have in our own solar system. Um, so that's everything that I have from detections to spectroscopy. And I, I kind of wanted to finish this Exocast uh, news doublet on something that I think is absolutely fantastic. Um, now, during this uh, the, these past few months, it was announced that the dwarf planet Haumea actually has a ring system around it. Now, this ring system was discovered uh, using stellar occultation studies of the dwarf planets as it passed in front of a very distant star. So it's very similar to what we're doing with these transits um, where the star and the planet are very far away. In this case, the planet's very, very close and the star is very, very far away. So you get the same kind of um, dip that you see. In fact, the planet, the dwarf planet blocks out the star entirely. So you can get a really good idea uh, of what that planet's atmosphere might be like if it has it. But what we actually found with Haumea is that it's got a ring system. And this is exactly the same way in which we discovered the ring system around Uranus. So it's really fascinating, this, these different uh, ways that we can try and understand the 
evolution and structure of a planetary system. And our own is a great probe for that. So if a dwarf planet can maintain a ring system, who's to say that some other Earth-sized worlds, Andrew, might be able to have a ring system? It really made me think of sci-fi and, and Star Wars, where there's a number of planets with large Saturnian-like ring systems around a terrestrial planet. And this kind of made my imagination to jump around a bit and go, oh my God, that's totally possible. So it would be really fantastic for sci-fi. And I, I guess I just have to wait and wonder and see what else we can discover out there. But I, I was excited by this little bit of science fiction coming to life. It's one of my favourite things uh, in the exoplanet field. Absolutely, that's really cool. And, you know, I'm thinking if there's a ring system, there could be moons or moonlets or, you know, yeah, something the incredible would love the being formed in that out there in the distant reaches of the solar system. Very cool. Um, I did just, I know it's been a super busy couple of months, but I did just want to highlight one thing that I kind of have some inside info on, uh, in that the, the final Kepler planet catalogue has been completed and submitted. Um, and it's currently up on the archive. Um, it's not been accepted to the uh, AAS yet, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it will be. Um, and yeah, so this is the final deliverable, as, uh, as we say here in the Kepler office, or the final data product. Uh, it's DR25. It contains, I think, another 4,000 planet candidates, um, 50 of which have the potential to be both rocky and in the habitable zone. So some exciting potential uh, speculative planets in there for, for people to talk about in terms of habitability and, and make me kind of upset about it. Um, but uh, yeah, this kind of really draws a line under, under, the Kepler, under the Kepler mission in terms of its, you know, kind of active, active mission. So I thought I'd highlight, I'd just highlight that. Um. Yeah, completely. Kepler is such a huge part of the exoplanet field. Uh, so I think it's really important to highlight the fact that it is now coming to a new beginning, I guess. End of an era. Yeah, absolutely. There's going to be little decades probably of, uh, of work, of PhDs to be done <laughs> with, uh, with this data. But um, yeah, certainly the, the end of, uh, of some sort of era, but the beginning of maybe another more exciting one coming up. Right, so now it's time for Hugh to adopt a planet into our crazy, wacky orphanage. Who have you got, Hugh? Well, I've gone for a planet that we've discussed a lot on this show. Um, and after checking the list, I realised we haven't actually adopted it yet. So uh, yeah, it needs no introduction, but it is Proxima b. Um, which is the closest exoplanet to the sun, and or t to the Earth, I guess, by proxy. Um, uh, and it will remain so as well. I mean, it's not going to be eclipsed anytime soon by closer planets because it is around the closest star, at least until the cosmic tides bring another planet-hosting star closer in a 10 million years or whatever it'll take. But yeah, so Proxima is 4.2 light years away in the Alpha Centauri group, of which it's obviously the, the closest, being that it's called Proxima, and the smallest, being an M-dwarf, it's only around 15% the mass of the sun. So given its proximity, it's been quite well studied by radial velocities, the star that is. And um, up to about 2014, there were sort of hints of a signal there. But uh, as with many of these small stars, the signals of star spots are on the, st on the surface of the star make detection a lot more challenging. So a push in 2015 by the pale red dot team, um, basically... From that, from that year of intense observations, they revealed a two meter per second Doppler signal that we now know as Proxima b. And that signal shows um, that the planet's about 1.3 Earth masses at minimum. So it could be, could be larger, but there's only about 5% chance that it's more than 
15 Earth masses. So it's almost certainly rocky. Um, and on an orbit of 11 days, which, thanks to the low luminosity of its star, puts Proxima B dead centre of that habitable zone. But maybe dead centre is, is a better term, because given the dangerous X-ray flux from its star, which is obviously quite nearby, and we see flare almost every day, and it's tidally locked, um, the habitability of Proxima B is, you know, under uh, under intense sort of debate, I'd, I'd say. Um, and a search for transits as well in the last year suggested that Proxima B doesn't properly transit, but we, we're still kind of waiting on confirmation of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we've talked about it enough, so I'll leave it at that. Do you guys... I mean, we should have included this before, I, I would have thought, right? I feel it's the same thing as with, like, HD 189733B, which I thought you guys would have already added. It's like, you know, that's the gas giant. We even talked about it in this episode again as, you know, another benchmark. And Proxima kind of feels that way for terrestrial exoplanets. So, yeah, I'm surprised it's not then in there. I had to I had to double-check our website, I'm on, if I'm honest, to make sure we, we hadn't already adopted it. Well, before we uh, we sign off for this episode, uh, we do have some very exciting news to announce uh, in that we are launching the uh, inaugural Exocast Exoplanet Cup, hashtag Exocup. Um, this is going to be a Twitter poll knockout series between 32 amazing exoplanets, some of which you may recognize from our Adopter Planet segment, uh, some of which our astronomer colleagues has highlighted as their favorites. Um, and these planets are going to battle out in a, in a head-to-head using Twitter polls. Now, we we did get this idea, or we were um, inspired to do this by the hashtag MinCup, um, which was the Mineral Cup, um, which, you know, I think Olivine ended up winning, and I was really bitter about it because I was a Zircon guy. Um, but I think the fact that, you know, there was nearly, what, 17,000 votes at the in the final really illustrated how how excited people were about this. Um, so Exoplanet seems like a, a great a great option for this, this kind of model. So if you're not super familiar with 32 individual exoplanets, which we don't expect you to be, we do have you covered. Uh, each planet in the cup has a little fact sheet, a fact card with, with stats and even um, a little, little background info that will accompany each one of the tweets so that you can form an opinion and debate politely with other folks on the internet about which planet is better. Um, so we'll be starting um, after this episode goes live, uh, so probably on Monday the 30th with round one, and it'll be going for the next month or so and ending when, Hannah? Hannah knows. Hannah plans. Uh, we'll end on Friday the 17th with the champion exoplanet, and we'll talk about it in the next episode of Exocast. Oh, great. So we're going we're gonna to talk about it during our next episode um, yeah, we're going to go through all of the cards. We're going to go through the entire championship, looking at each of these in turn, uh, and then really focusing on our champion exoplanet right at the end there. Okay, so keep And the three of us promise to be as unbiased as... No, that's not going to happen, is it? <laughs> <laughs> we were unbiased in how we organised the brackets. They were randomised, and I think that's we're true. pretty unbiased in how we've um, developed the cards, in that they just have, you know, info and maybe like one line of, uh, you know, of a little, a little quirky... Um, a quirky quirk of the planets so we try to be unbiased in that in that situation but i don't think we have any obligation to be unbiased from here on out so terrestrial exoplanets all the way don't worry about the gas giants hot jupiter's <laughs> gonna win gas giants gonna crush you all i think i'll side with andrew on this as well sorry well that's not very fair come on guys i'm sure there'll be plenty of people on the internet who are gas giant fans so down with the brown dwarfs 
They're not exoplanets, they're too big. Yeah, I think yeah. we can all agree with that. Okay, so you can head over to uh, www.exocast.org forward slash exocup um, to see uh, the the table and some of the cards. Uh, we're not going to release them all at once. We'll we'll do them in in bits as the rounds um, as the rounds progress. So keep an eye out for that on Twitter hashtag exocup. So thank you very much for for joining us on another installment of Exocast. As I mentioned, next month we're going to be announcing the winner of Exocup and discussing all the wonderful worlds we've explored with our Twitter followers uh, over the last month. So make sure you tune in for that. Until then, you can check out all our previous shows on our website, exocast.org, and on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at exo underscore cast. Make sure you follow the hashtag exocup, of course, as well. Uh, And you can like us on Facebook. So until next time, bye. 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 Exocast.